Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, everyone. My name is Ryan Mara Evans, and I'm a student farm manager with the Yale Sustainable Food Program. Joining me in the studio today is internationally recognized French chef, multiple James Beard Award winner, television personality, co-founder of the American Institute of Wine and Food, and one of the United States' best-known cooking teachers, Jacques Pepin. Welcome, Jacques. Thank you. Oh, that's very nice. What am I going to say now? <laughs> well, we could we could start off with something easy. I want to okay. I want to know what your favorite sound in the kitchen is. My favorite sound your in the kitchen. Favorite sound in the kitchen. The frying of the chicken in the oven. You know, when I was an apprentice, I could recognize whether the chicken was roasted, finished cooking, just by the sound of it through the door. It um, the chicken doesn't make any sound when you put it into the oven, but when it reach the level that it's cooked at, then the fat comes out of it and it starts grizzling a little bit, making a very specific sound. So that's um, part, of the, part of my Proustian memory, you know. Mm. So Thanksgiving is coming up, of uh-huh. course. Uh, what is Thanksgiving dinner going to look like in your household this year? Well, I don't know. I'm eating at my daughter this year. <laughs> my daughter is in the Providence, uh, Rhode Island. Her husband is a chef as well, and he teach at uh, Johnson & Well. Yet, I probably will be cooking, and uh, there is no Thanksgiving for me unless there is a turkey, unless there is, a, you know, Brussels sprout, unless there is sweet potato, unless there is a apple tart as well as a apple pie. And uh, it is, in my over 50 years in America, my best... My best holiday is Thanksgiving. There is no political implication. There is no religious implication. There is nothing. You just get together to eat and drink, and that's my type of thing. That's it. That's, it's food. It's a festival of food. So what is the perfect meal for you? Perfect meal. There is no perfect meal, but uh, it depends on the season. It depends what's at the market. It depends who I am with. depends whether I have a hangover or not. It depends all of this. But uh, basically, it would be relatively uh, straightforward and simple. Uh, okay, what did we eat last night? Uh, I cooked. Well, we had some foie gras because I had a friend of mine who brought me some foie gras, so it's kind of unusual. Uh, and uh, after that... I'm trying to think what did we cooked. I forgot already. Uh, I think it was, uh, uh, oh, it was um, uh, oyster. Well, first we had oyster, yes. I, I ordered 100 oysters, so we opened oyster, and after that uh, it was a stew of uh, pork shoulder that I had done, and I had some leftover, and a salad. That was the menu usually. Uh, it would be pretty uh, straightforward. I mean... Uh, I like food, certainly for me, the taste of it is more important than the presentation or the decoration. So, uh, and the simplicity and the quality of the, of the ingredient, uh, you know, is certainly what, what makes it, you know. Makes the meal, certainly. So, it's made clear through other interviews and your biography that your philosophy of food ha- has changed, you know, due to your life experiences and working in several different kitchens and several different parts of the food world. What is your current philosophy of food? I don't know maybe where you get that idea. I don't really think my philosophy has changed. It has evolved maybe slightly, uh, but ultimately it is still 
in fact, even more so now that I'm going to turn 80 years old, next year we go back to uh, maybe the, 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 the dishes that I had as a kid or those visceral tastes, you know, that you had, uh, that you were uh, formed with when you were uh, young. And uh, as you are a young chef, you tend to put on the plate too much, to add, to add, to add to the plate, you know, more this, more that. And as you get old, like uh, I am, then you take away, take away, take away from the plate to be left with uh, maybe just a perfect tomato, but out of the garden, the right temperature, with a bit of coarse salt on top and a good olive oil. That basically it, you know. So you have that type of uh, epuration, if you want. Um, certainly as you get older as I am so but I would say in general you know I'll be very happy with a roast chicken providing it tastes like a roast chicken properly done with a natural juice with a good salad with bread I mean people ask me what is the best thing you can put in your mouth I probably will tell you probably bread and butter you know if I have the greatest bread in the world and the greatest butter very difficult to beat <laughs> bread and butter what is it that makes food authentic? Is it something that's determined by region, like champagne or Roquefort cheeses, uh, or is it something else that makes an ingredient or a dish well, or a cuisine? All, all of that, all of that is part of it, but certainly the ingredient to start with. I mean, probably too much has been said about the chef, not enough about the farmer. Uh, who does the ingredient, although now we're talking a great deal about artisan, farmer, cheesemaker, winemaker, and so forth. Yes, this starts there. You know, there is no superlative food without great ingredient. And uh, when you pick up uh, wild uh, raspberry that we do, a wild strawberry that we do in France, tiny one under the leaf when we were a kid, if you have the greatest cream, you find in a farm there, it's hard to beat those wild raspberry, wild strawberry and the cream, you know. So you don't do it too much. And it's a, a problem, you know, not to do too much to the food, to keep it, uh, to keep the food the taste of what it should be, of what it is, you know. And uh, I go to a lot of restaurants and I have a beautiful plate in front of me and uh, um, I eat something and they say, is it good? I say, yes. They tell me, what is it? I say, I don't know. <laughs> it's good. You know, because things are, are molded, cut into little things with different vegetables and sliced and too, and it ends up being pretty good. But, you know, if I can put a, you know, something on your eyes and put a plate of food in front of you, if you tell me, well, this is chicken, it's got some white wine in it, some mushroom, you're pretty far into the dish and it's probably a good dish for me. You know, if you haven't tortured it too much, you know. So you, you mentioned your, your Proustian memory earlier. Yeah. And you, you hold two degrees from Columbia, and, you, and you've taught at Boston University for, for multiple years now. Uh -huh. Could you comment a little bit more on the relationship between food and the academy? Well, certainly uh, the Proustian memory, Proust in remembering of Think Pass, you know, talk about those so-called affective memory, that is the memory of the senses, uh, the ear, as we say, my chicken roasting, but certainly the view, the smell, and of course the taste, all of that are part of those affective memory, which are different than the memory of the brain. I mean, if you ask me where I was in uh, 1959, working in Paris, my brain will 
think for a minute and I will tell you I was in such and such place. So that's the way your brain works. But the affective memory uh, kind of uh, assail you. You know, they attack you when you don't expect it. When you're walking in the wood and you smell something and all of a sudden you're six years old, the smell is there, you know, or the taste of something. Or the so those type of... Uh, Affective memory that he described in his well-known part where he, 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 he eat his little madeleine, uh, uh, you know, that he dunk into, uh, into tea. Uh, those are very, very important for the chef, for the food critic, uh, for anyone involved with food, those memory of the senses, you know. So for us, yes, uh, even the touching of the food, you know, itself is important. You know, and that, that's why you'll see a chef going to the market, you know, grabbing the tomato or this. I mean, you had that tactile, you know, relation with the food, as well as the visual information you get from here, the smelling, of course, and so forth, you know. What was your question? <laughs> <laughs> the, the relationship between the academy and food and exploring things like literature or things like history right, right. Uh, in like an academic context. Yes, but this hasn't been really investigated that much. I mean, uh, in fact, uh, we were talking about that before. On the way coming in, I, I studied at Columbia many, many years ago. And after I, I, uh, I did a master on, on, uh, on Voltaire, actually, but uh, I was doing a PhD and I wanted to write about food. And that was 1972. And it was, I wanted to write well, a bit of an history of French cooking that is in the context of civilization literature that is starting in the Pleiad poet, maybe in the 16th century up to Proust, you know, early 20th century, as food evolved and the way it was in, the, you know, not only Rabelais in the 16th century, Montaigne, and maybe of the great writer. Certainly in the 19th century, it was very big in France, from Alexander Dumas, Flaubert, Balzac, and so forth. So... Uh, but at that time, the, the French department at Columbia told me, are you nuts? <laughs> I mean, you want to write about food? So uh, anyway, uh, uh, many things have been written since that time. But uh, yes, for me, to study a, a civilization through the culture of food, get it very, very close, get you very, very close to, to the people themselves rather than studying it to the very large uh, events like First World War, Second World War, and so far, that's fine too. But as you get into uh, food itself and the development of food through the century and the different practice and all that, uh, you get closer to the common man, you know, than you would otherwise, I think. I think I may, I may agree with that as yeah. well. So to go back into the, the store of your memory, for a little while you worked as a line cook at Hojo's. Uh, could, would you mind sharing a memory from that period? Uh, yes. I mean, uh, for more than a little while, from 1960 to 1970, I was the director of research for Howard Johnson. And uh, I, uh, I started, uh, I, I came from, I worked at the Pavillon in New York when I came to this country, which was considered maybe the greatest uh, French restaurant in the country, which I think it was. So Howard Johnson was, was quite different. Uh, uh, and uh, actually, in the spring of 1960, I was offered the job at the White House for Kennedy. And uh, I took the job at Howard Johnson. Uh, so uh, people don't realize 
at that point, I had been the chef to the president in France and never had been on, the, on a newspaper, on a magazine, on the radio, well, television barely existed. I mean, the cook was really at the bottom of the social scale, and you would never be called in the dining room to get some kudo or whatever. It didn't exist. Uh, no one ever came to the kitchen. If they came to the kitchen where something was wrong, you were going to get yelled at, but what about the end of it? So at that time, uh, certainly up to uh, well, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, I was working, but up to 25 years ago, the cook was really very low on the social scale, and any good mother would have wanted their child to marry a lawyer, a doctor, uh, you know, uh, but uh, certainly not a cook. But now we are genius, so I don't know what happened. <laughs> French food, as you mentioned earlier, it kind of serves as the, the bedrock for many French cultural norms and mores and values. How do you see the United States, our social mores, norms, values reflected, if at all, in our food? Well, I would say that, uh, you know, the most exciting country in the world in food now is probably the United States. I mean... Uh, I've been working here for over half a century, but there is 24,000 restaurants in New York City. And the breadth of food itself is, uh, I don't think, it equal anywhere in the world. Uh, it's interesting because when I came here, there was a dichotomy uh, between uh, the people, what often the European think of the American eating hot dog, hamburger, uh, 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 you know, pizza and uh, fried chicken, whatever. And uh, this is part of the, the, the society who eat that if you want the, the what I may call the uh, the mall crowd. You know, you go in those malls of the enormous people and basically, yeah, they eat four or five dish and go back to this and so forth. So in that sense, their spectrum of taste is certainly much less uh, elaborated if you want, or much uh, uh, smaller than most European, Italian, French, Spanish, or whatever. Uh, conversely, however, you are in a place like New York, or San Francisco, or whatever now, and you see the diversity, the ethnicity of all the restaurants too. At that point, you have people partaking of all those types of ethnic food, and uh, in that sense, their spectrum of taste is probably much larger than most European. But that's more recent, uh, because what happened in America, in my opinion, there was never a cuisine which was strong enough to uh, dominate, in a sense, the palate of uh, every American because the country is made of ethnic group uh, and that the whole, that the beauty of it. And that's why someone like me coming from France could become successful here. Because probably the best chef, French chef outside of France, are probably in America. But the best Italian chef outside of Italy are probably in America. And the best Greek chef, are Greek and so forth. And that's what makes America different. You know? So uh, in, in a sense, there is a great deal of diversity. Because even now, if you go to France, 99% uh, of people eat French. You know? And there is, uh, of course, there is ethnic restaurants quite a lot too, but still. 99% of Italian people eat Italian and 99% of Spanish people eat Spanish, which is not necessarily the case in America, where people dig a little bit in all of those ethnic food uh, in the found part of the country. So that's probably what makes it maybe more exciting now than it has ever been, certainly in this country. The American tastes, I think, are 
a bit more cosmopolitan. Oh, yeah. Structure. So you've seen tons of changes in the United States foodscape uh-huh. since you've been here. Yes. Which changes do you think are here to stay? And which ones do you think are going to be fads, blips in the history? Well, books? you know, there is fashion which come and there is fad also. I mean, we're out of the, I don't know, pink peppercorn period or one of those things. But uh, uh, it's interesting that uh, prior to the Second World War, uh, food was very simple in America. You know, apple pie, steak too, but it was affordable. In a sense, it was much more democratic than any food in Europe, where in France, certainly, <coughs> uh, people started to discover the food after the French Revolution that uh, uh, the cook were serving the royalty and uh, the nobility and so forth, which was unknown from the people in the street. Never happened in America. People could afford uh, from, as I say, steak and uh, apple pie and so forth. Good food, but very straightforward and simple. And... Uh, that what made it more uh, democratic, you know, in uh, in in many ways. Uh, but now it is uh, it is changing. It has changed. It has uh, changed a great great deal. I mean, amazingly, uh, I, I publish a cookbook for many many years, and I remember one of my first cookbook called La Technique. I published, I think, in seventy four five. There was maybe five, six, eight. 10 books maybe published that year, so people look at your book. I think last year there were 20, 23 or 2,400 books published in America. So it's just an amazing thing. I mean, there was no food uh, column in any newspaper at that time. There was one magazine, which was Gourmet Magazine, which now has disappeared anyway, but the food column in the New York Times and all that would start uh, probably in the, in the mid-60s, uh, and so forth. So there has been uh, amazing change, and uh, many of those, the quality of the restaurant, are there to change. What I said before the Second World War, things were organic in this country as well. There were small farmers, and you would eat, and uh, it would be uh, by uh, crop rotation or small farm. I mean, it was done in a different way. So in a sense, I always say that my mother and my father were organic gardeners. Of course, the word organic did not exist, but since chemical fertilizer did not exist either, and fungicide, insecticide, pesticide did not exist either, so everyone was an organic farmer. And so it was in this country. And after a revolt maybe against the, 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 you know, the TV dinner uh, uh, after the, just at the turn of the Second World War, and also the Industrial Revolution, mechanization of food, and the whole thing changed greatly. And uh, now we are going back, it seems, to, uh, to uh, more organic, more local food. Uh, I think that 10 years ago, there was about uh, 1,700 uh, farmers market in this country. There is about eight or 9,000 now. Uh, so it is changing. And in a sense, it's kind of a deja vu going back to the way your great-great-great-grandmother used, used to cook to a certain extent. So it's a desirable thing, and I think it's exciting and it's good. And I hope it continues and expands, not only in the, in the garden, but in the, in the raising of animal and so forth, because uh, we've been too far one way, so now we're coming back the other way. And then we have people from my generation or the generation right above returning to the kitchen. I and hope so. Home cooks. Could you talk more about the evolution of the of the chef in America? Do you think the trade of the chef is being democratized to the same extent that 
Well, it's be, it been uh, uh, idolized and democratized, whatever. But uh, uh, when I came to America, uh, then I worked for Howard Johnson. Uh, and then I would say until the mid to the end of the 60s, I did not know one white American chef in New York. All of the American chefs that I knew were black kids that I worked with at Howard Johnson. All of the restaurants that I knew in New York, big hotel restaurants to wear, French, Italian, Spanish, Swiss, German, a great deal, but no, no American. Uh, until uh, uh, Nouvelle Cuisine started and uh, Culinary Institute of America, which, which as you may know, used to be in New Haven and move upstate New York, starting, uh, you know, creating, uh, you know, those school of chefs. Uh, it wasn't really the type of trade that a young American uh, went into. And now, of course, it's totally different. There is extraordinary, extraordinary chef in this country, from uh, Thomas Keller to, uh, to many others, you know. Is there any one young chef who you're really excited oh, about yes. right now? there is plenty. Multiple. I, mean, I came back from, uh, from, uh, uh, from uh, San Francisco last week. I was there 32 days. Because I did 26 new shows for PBS, plus another 10 shows for uh, websites and internet or whatever, because I do my show for the last 27 years at KQED, the PBS station in San Francisco. So there I had, uh, I had uh, the occasion of eating in many restaurants, and many of those, I mean, from new restaurants like State Bird, uh, which is kind of very in type of rent. The young chef there is really fantastic, to uh, people like uh, older chef, like at, uh, at Farallon in New York, Mark France, who's an extraordinary chef. Yeah, there's many. In each of the town now, you're going to find some really, really good chef. So you're you're also very well regarded. I mean, as you just said, for your your cooking television, um, uh -huh. which has primarily been on the instructive side. Uh, yes. You've also mentioned the trend of right, the idolization of chefs. Right. How do you think competitive cooking television plays into this entire scene? Well, I did a a blog. I mean, I don't I don't do blog, but I, I think it was a blog or something that I did on television for. Uh, what was it? The Daily Meal, I think it was. Anyway, a few weeks ago, where I uh, did a, a small essay criticizing uh, that type of reality TV with pitch one cook against the, the, the other. Uh, and I thought that I was attacking Gordon Ramsay. And, uh, and they say that I'm giving a spanking, <laughs> which I didn't even think of it. But uh, uh, yes, uh, uh, there is a great deal uh, at the, the risk of sounding kind of corny. There is a great deal of love which is done in cooking. You have to give a lot of yourself. You know, you, you put if you want to cook properly. And uh, so pitting one person against the other one and that screaming, that insulting and all that is really not conducive to good cooking or uh, cooking well. So, but it, it does good for television. I mean, if you want to go in a great kitchen, you go at Jean Georges in New York or at Percy at, uh, you know, Thomas Keller, the television come here, there is no noise. You know, there is the order coming in, the chef order. It's like a ballet going back and forth. The order say, pick up table seven, do that. Too. Television, after five minutes, say, this is boring. I mean, there is nothing. There is no challenge, no yelling, no nothing at all. So they don't do that, which is really what a real kitchen is. 
you know, so they did uh, like the restaurant with uh, Rocky the Spirit a few years ago, where everyone is yelling back and forth in the kitchen dining room. But this is not the way a kitchen is run. That doesn't work out this way, believe me. So, but it's very entertaining. And uh, I, I was somewhere a few weeks ago, and there was a quote, a food historian who said that there is 407 cookery shows on television now. Now, I don't know whether it's accurate or not, but if it's not 407, seven, maybe 350, but uh, a great deal of those are those kind of reality fighting show. I, this is not what I do. And I, I you know, I, uh, I'm sure a lot of people look at my show and say, that guy is really boring. I mean, and that's fine. You know, you cannot please everybody. But uh, I, I like to teach. I, I show something, I explain, and uh, that's what I do. I mean, uh, I am not an actor. To be one person one season and another person the <laughs> season after. This is what I do. Some people love it, some don't, and it's fine with me, you know. Do you think instructive cooking television is the best way to teach people how to cook? Well, it is one of the best ways. I mean, uh, because uh, I have a book, one of the latest books that I did, Actually, the latest book, I have a new book coming out with that series next year, but the latest one was called uh, Essential Paper. Now, that book is good for me particularly because I have a, a DVD, four hours of technique in that book. You know, from tying your apron properly to making a caramel cache to boning out a chicken to doing a pomme souffle to, uh, I mean, you name it, puff paste or whatever. This is very, very visual. I teach at the French Culinary Institute in New York called ICC now. And we charge, I think, $45,000 for the program of six months. I teach at BU, uh, which is a program of three months, but it's still like $15,000, which is actually one of the best uh, price. Uh, those techniques are all in there, you know, for maybe 40 bucks, and it's very visual. If I show you with a knife that I run on a piece of butter to make a rose with that, now if I have to explain to you in a word after one and a half page where I say, hold your knife perpendicular to the butter, scrape it on top, you're going to say, what the heck is he talking about? You see that, this is visual, and you can see, oh, yeah, yeah, oh, well, that's how it's done, and so forth. So, uh, yes, visual is very, very important. So on television, and I feel that the people of PBS, I mean, Lydia Bastianich, uh, uh, Ming Tsai, uh, Rick Bellis, and people like this, uh, Martin Yan, I mean, we still teach people how to cook. As I say, some people are bored by it, some like more of the, the, the challenge, the fight, and all that, and it's fine. But I mean, uh, I am amazed how, how popular I mean, those cooking shows are. You know, it's amazing. And to complete the interview, what is one hope you have for the next generation of home cooks and of chefs? Well, you know, uh, there is always a certain amount of snobism in food, snobism in wine. I mean, you know, we get into food, now people went into wine, then people making cheese, and now the young chefs are turning to what? Uh, offals, you know, I mean, from snot to tail, and eating, uh, making charcuterie, pig's feet, uh, tribe bladder, and uh, uh, all kind of charcuterie, which is great. I mean, this is the way you learn, and it's done in all great cuisine. I mean, uh, uh, China and so forth. You don't lose any of those offals. It's even considered sometimes more expensive than the, than the meat itself. I hope that people will uh, will continue. I hope that uh, uh, the, the 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 movement toward the uh, you know, going back to the market, buying your own food, cooking, having your garden, uh, will uh, come back again more. 
I hope that people especially will sit down around the table and eat with their kid and with the family. That's a very, very important part of the structure of my life, certainly. And when my daughter was three years old, and uh, she's 47 now, so she would come home and say, Mom, what's for dinner? My wife would say, food. And that's what we had for dinner, food. <laughs> that's, it. that's what happened with my granddaughter now. But certainly every day we would spend an hour and a half behind the table uh, talking. And that's the only platform where you really talk about school, about other type of thing. Not always necessarily pleasant, but <laughs> I think it's a necessary in the structure of a, of a family to sit down, share the food. And for the kid, for me, the kid come back from school, going to the kitchen and smelling uh, the smell of the kitchen, hearing the voice of your mother, the voice of your father, the cling of the, the instrument and all that, and the taste, those very, uh, uh, those very visceral uh, feeling, you know, will stay with you the rest of your life. You know, those smell and those tastes. So they are very, very important, again, in the Prussian memory. As I say, so I hope we move more into that direction, and it seems to be moving in that direction a little bit. So I think it's great. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information, please visit our website at www.yale.edu slash sustainable food.